All right, let's talk about Charles Dickens. Actually, before we talk about the three opening chapters of Charles Dickens' novels, I would like to go over the assignment for your second essay. Uh, now, I realize that you haven't uh, had to turn in your first essay yet, but uh, you'll see the topic of, of this lecture uh, fits in exactly with the topic of your second paper, so I wanted to combine them. Your second essay is going to be about writing an analysis of a novel's first chapter, which is what we'll be talking about doing with some of Charles Dickens' novels today. Uh, I'd like you to choose one of the opening chapters from the list of novels that I have provided on the assignment sheet and write about the experience of reading that chapter, what that experience does for a reader. You want the analysis to connect the use of various literary devices, the uh, style, tone, imagery, point of view, all of those things, with the ideas and the emotions that the chapter is conveying to its audience. Think about how the chapter is guiding and manipulating a reader's responses. Uh, one way of thinking about this is imagine that the chapter is a mental roller coaster ride. If you wanted to describe what was so great about a particular roller coaster, you would have to describe what happened in it, you know, what were the twists and turns and loops and what happens along the way. That's kind of what you're doing for your chosen chapter. Now, I want you to base your analysis completely on the opening chapter itself. Even if you've read the entire novel, don't refer to that. Refer only to the opening chapter. Now, you can certainly discuss uh, expectations that are set up in the chapter. Many times an opening chapter leaves open questions and makes the reader wonder what's going to happen. You can certainly talk about that. But in general, treat it as a self-contained unit. Because that's how every first-time reader hears uh, a, a chapter, the first chapter of a novel. It's a, it's has to stand on its own. One strategy you might use to help you do your analysis is to find a simple prose summary of the chapter. Uh, you can find those on Sparknotes and, and Schmoop. Um, and compare that summary, that bland summary, with the chapter itself. Think about what the summary leaves out, what it glosses over, what it makes clearer than the, the actual chapter does, how it maybe rearranges the order of events. All of those things can give you insights into how the actual language works in the chapter you're analyzing. It can help you see how an author can use nuances of language to make something, change something that's just transporting ideas into something that becomes, again, a mental roller coaster, an amusement park ride for your mind. Uh, as you do with your sonnet paper, I'd like you to begin the paper with a genuine question about how the chapter works. Uh, and that question can be the last sentence of your first paragraph. The rest of the essay will be your answer to that question. Uh, you want your, your uh, as before, you want your a paper to be well organized. Each paragraph should deal with a specific element and explain how that element works. Uh, it should have a clear topic sentence. You should have a final paragraph that draws your conclusions and states your, uh, your, your basic point of your essay. You need to read the chapter slowly, carefully, and over and over again if you want to make good observations about it. And be specific. The more specific you are, the better. 
look for little details, uh, a, a choice of words, a particular, an, an unusual image, uh, a sentence structure. The more detail you can get, the stronger your analysis will be. And make sure everything is related to the actual words of the text. Stick with the words. Uh, again, treat this as a self-contained unit. Uh, for your own writing, uh, make it clear and concise. Don't try to sound impressive. Uh, write in a simple, clear, plain-spoken, conversational voice. Uh, that will be do you much better than trying to sound like a pompous essay writer. Uh, and don't make this paper longer than what you have to say. Uh, again, all of this I went over for the first paper. And as with the first paper, I'll be looking at the how smart and how specific your ideas are, how detailed and precise your analysis is, and how clear how clear your prose is, and how uh, interesting and persuasive your thesis is. As with your first essay, this should be a five to eight hundred word essay with MLA formatting. Uh, there's a link to my website that gives some details on that if you need to know that. And as before, you will submit it on Turnitin, the Turnitin link on our Blackboard page, uh, SA2 novel chapter. And as before, there's a two-tier deadline. If you want comments on your paper, you need to turn it in by April the 10th. Uh, now, again, you can't get the comments and then rewrite the paper, but uh, you, you can have my written feedback on it. Uh, the absolute deadline for the paper is April 21st. So if you want comments, it needs to be on in by Monday, April 10th. If you don't, it needs to be in by Friday, April 21st. Now, the list of novels that I've given you, I've given you a dozen novels. Any one of these can and often have appeared on lists of the greatest English novel. Uh, so these are, you know, big, important works. Uh, one of the problems in doing a class that includes the 19th century is that the thing that the 19th century did best was big, long novels. But it's hard to read a lot of big, long novels in a 15-week class when you've got so many other things that you need to read. So this is one way where you can get a taste of some of the, the, the novels that were being written in this time period. Uh, now, I've you have links on my website uh, to the individual chapters. You can find, read the text of them there. But I would strongly urge you to get a scholarly edition of the book when you're writing your analysis. Uh, Norton or Penguin are always good options for that. Those will have notes and annotations that will help you understand the, the chapter better. Uh, and also, whether you do that or not, be sure that you look up all the words that you don't know or think you might not know. Uh, it's very hard to understand something if you don't know what the words mean. So be sure that you do that. Uh, if you have any questions about the essay, uh, you can always email me at drmarkwomack at gmail.com. All right, let's look at some of these opening chapters by Charles Dickens. Uh, Charles Dickens is maybe the most important of the great 19th century novelists. He certainly, I think he has the, the biggest body of work that has endured uh, into our century. Uh, and 
these are three of his most impressive works. I want to look first at the first chapter of Bleak House in Chancery. Now, Chancery was the court of Chancery. Uh, The contemporary audience would have known that. He basically means the law court. And I want to start by looking at the Spark Notes summary of Chapter 1 of Bleak House. Let me read that to you. In London, the Lord High Chancellor sits in Lincoln's Inn Hall in the High Court of Chancery. It is November and very foggy. Several counsels, uh, uh, counsels and solicitors are looking through the paperwork of a court case called Jarndyce and Jarndyce, which has gone on for generations. An old woman who appears to be crazy sits at the side of the room. She may be a party in the lawsuit. The case is so old that no one really remembers what it is about anymore, and it has corrupted countless people. A man named Mr. Tangle knows more about the case than anyone else. The Chancellor determines to send two young people, a girl and a boy, to live with their uncle. All right, well, yeah, that, that kind of gets the, the, the basic things that happen in the chapter, but actually very little happens in this chapter, and it's much more about setting a tone and a mood, and those are things that just don't get into, you know, in the, uh, the Spark Note summary, all they say is, it is November and very foggy. Well, look at what, how Dickens sets that up. Just this opening paragraph. London. Michaelmas term lately over, and the Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Inn Hall. Implacable November weather. As much mud in the streets as if the waters had been newly retired from the face of the earth, and it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus forty feet or so, waddling like an elephantine lizard up Holborn Hill. Just start there. Uh, First of all, he starts out with these fragment sentences, just the word, London. Michaelmas term lately over. Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Hall, in Hall. Uh, he's not even giving full sentence, just quick impressions of all of these things. Implacable November weather. That's not a complete sentence here. Here is Dickens is using fragment sentences. You know, he would be counted off by his English teacher. Uh, but think about why he's doing that. It gives you a, a quick, vivid impression, but doesn't really orient you. It's not giving you nice subjects and verbs that tell you this is happening because that is happening. It's just, here this is, here's this thing, here, here all, you know, not even understanding how it all fits together, really. Um, and the imagery, uh, the, the, new, the November weather is implacable. That's a very interesting word choice. You don't think about weather as being implacable. Implacable means uh, unforgiving, unyielding. Uh, that's something you think you think of people as being implacable, but as we'll see, that Im- implacability is one of the the qualities of this world that he's setting up, and so the weather is also implacable. And there's mud in the streets, uh, and it's, it's it's like it's a prehistoric time. You could see a megalosaurus there. There's mud and smoke lowering down from the chimney pots making a soft black drizzle with flakes of soot in it as big as full-grown snowflakes, gone into mourning, one might imagine, for the death of the sun. So it's this dark, smoky, muddy world, dogs indistinguishable in mire, horses scarcely better, splashed to their very blinkers. Dogs are covered in mud, horses covered in mud. Um, Mud everywhere. Uh, as he says, the mud is accumulating at compound interest. 
again, using these very interesting images from the human world to describe the natural world. So the, the weather is implacable. The mud is accumulating at compound interest. Uh, this is an unnatural natural world. This is a, a natural world that's made in terms of, of human things. And there are all of these ing verbs. This is happening right now, uh, the sense of a, a process going on. And it talks about the, the fog. Again, remember the uh, Spark Notes summary said, it is November and very foggy. Here's what Dickens says. Fog everywhere. Fog up the river, where it flows among green eights and meadows. Fog down the river, where it rolls defiled among the tiers of shipping and waterside pollution of a great and dirty city. Fog on the Essex March. He goes on, fog, this whole paragraph, fog here, fog, fog creeping in, fog lying, fog dropping. Again, the ing verbs. Fog in the eyes and the throats of the ancient Greenwich prisoner, uh, pensioners. Fog in the stem and the bowl of the afternoon pipe. Fog cruelly pensioning the toes and fingers of his shivering little prentice boy on the deck. Now notice the fog is becoming almost personified here. Uh, you know, it's doing all these things, uh, uh, fog all around them, as if they were up in a balloon and hanging in the misty clouds. Uh, so this is a, a muddy, lightless, foggy world. And we get the, the next paragraph, gas looming through the fog. So the gas lights, remember they, not, they don't have the electricity, this is all lit by gas, and that they loom uh, in the in the air, and then we get to the Lord High Chancellor, uh, and hard by Temple Bar in Lincoln's Inn Hall, at the very heart of the fog, sits the Lord High Chancellor in his High Court of Chancery. Now notice, the chapter doesn't give that information until well into you know, several paragraphs in. The summary gives it right off in the first sentence. Now, think about that. What uh, Dickens is doing is delaying that information by giving you a sense of the world that this is in. It wouldn't mean so much if we just started with the Lord High Chancellor. He wants to give you the environment of the, the, uh, the, the world that he's creating. And notice, too, that this is all in third-person omniscient point of view. This is a, a narrator's voice speaking this. This is not an individual person uh, telling an account of thing. This is the kind of God's eye view that so many 19th century novels used. Though we'll see that uh, Dickens could also write in first person very well. And another key device that uh, Dickens uses here is repetition. We've already seen the repetition of fog, fog, fog. In this uh, next paragraph, uh, on such an afternoon, on such an afternoon, that's repeated three or four times. Uh, that sense of repetition also fits into this world. This is a world where the same things are happening over and over again. Uh, there, it, it's oppressive in a lot of ways. Um, and we, we again see those images of fog around the Lord High Chancellor with a foggy glory round his head. Uh, the, the lawyers are mistily engaged. It's like they're a part of the fog, or the fog is part of them. Um and it says, well may the court be dim with wasting candles here and there. Well may the fog hang heavy in it as if the, it would never get out. 
Well may the stained glass windows lose their color and admit no light of day into the place. Again, those repetitions, well may, well may, well may, and the sense of this kind of oppressive, dim, heavy, lightless world that he's creating. Um, and it says, Lord High Chancellor, this is the top of page three, Lord High Chancellor looks into the lantern that has no light in it and where the attendant wigs are all stuck in a fog bank. This is the court of chancery, which has its decaying houses and blighted lands in every shire, which, now here we go again, which, 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 um, you know, the which gives to moneyed might the means abundantly of wearying out the right, which so exhausts finances. Um, so now he's telling us, you know, the, which uh, has, it's worn out lunatic in every madhouse. All of these horrible, oppressive things that the law does. Um, and here in this murky afternoon, we find out about the case of Jarndyce and Jarndyce. Uh, again, uh, no, unlike the summary, Dickens waits to introduce that. He's established this world. And think about the, the, this law case. It's Jarndyce and Jarndyce. So it's like a, again, a repetition, but it's a suit against itself. This is like, a, a, you know, divorce cases are often like that, you know, Smith versus Smith, uh, because it's an inner family struggle. Uh, same thing here. It must be two members of the same family are suing each other. Um, and we get um, all these, uh, their places are a blank. Standing on a seat on the side of the hall, the better to peer into the cus uh, curtain sanctuary is a little old mad woman in a squeezed bonnet who is always in court from sitting to its uh, from its sitting to its rising and always expecting some incomprehensible judgment to be given in her favor um, again so this crazy woman again she wants some incomprehensible judgment uh, some say she really is or was a party to a suit but no one knows for certain because no one cares again that tells us a lot about lawyers in the in the world of the law here she carries some small litter some small litter in a reticule, which she calls her documents, principally consisting of paper matches and dry lavender. So she's got a, a little purse, and she carries her documents. So there are a lot of documents in the law clerk, but her documents are just, you know, paper matches. This, a sallow prisoner has come up for custody for the half-dozenth time to make a personal application. Yes. Another ruined suitor. Now, here's something else that's interesting about the summary. The summary only mentions the little mad woman. Now, it turns out that she's the only character who will reappear later in the novel. But when you're reading it the first time, you don't know this. She's just one of three uh, uh, people they talk about here in the court. And they're all kind of uh, interesting and presented in different ways. But then it goes on and tells us more about the case itself. Jarndyce and Jarndyce drones on on page four. Uh, so complicated that no man alive knows what it means. Uh, you know, says the the little plaintiff or defendant who was promised a new rocking horse when Jarndyce and Jarndyce should be settled has grown up, possessed himself of a real horse, and trotted away into the other world. So, if you were a little boy and you know your your parents promised to get you a rocking horse when Jarndyce and Jarndyce was finished, well, you grew up. 
you were old enough to buy a real horse, and now you've actually trotted away into the other world. You're dead now. And notice that the way that the case of Jorndus and Jorndus fits in perfectly with this world of fog and mud and oppressive darkness. You say there are not three Jorndises left upon the earth. Perhaps since old Tom Jorndus, in despair, blew his brains out at a coffee house in Chancery Lane. But Jorndus and Jorndus still drags its dreary length before the court, perennially hopeless. So even though it doesn't look like there's anybody alive even, but the, the, the wheels of justice keep going. And so, so much of the imagery in this chapter and just the way it's written and the repetitions are setting up this oppressive sense of this legal nightmare world uh, that the, the novel is creating. And look on page five when it's uh, talking about one of the law's lawyers. It says, Mr. Chisel, Mizzle, or otherwise. Again, these silly little names. You can't, was his name Chisel or Mizzle or something else? It doesn't matter. Um, and then we find out later there's a guy named Drizzle. Chisel, Mizzle, Drizzle. He's kind of making fun just of their, their names here. And we see a little later there's a Mr. Tangle. And we think that may be just another kind of silly nickname, but no, it turns out his name actually is Tangle. What a great name for an, a, a, a lawyer, right? Mr. Tangle. Uh, and he says at the, the near the bottom of page five, uh, or the Lord High Chancellor addresses him. Mr. Tangle, says the Lord High Chancellor, laterly something restless under the eloquence of that learned gentleman. Blood. Now look at the way he spells that, M-L-U-D. It's my Lord, but kind of slurred together. Blood. But also note how that fits with the image of mud uh, in the in the earlier part of the chapter. He asks him, have you nearly concluded your argument? Blood, no. Variety of points, still at my duty, submit, submit, bloodship, is the reply that slides out of Mr. Tangle. Look at the way he slurs his words and the way Dickens uh, uh, indicates that. Not to submit, but submit, and not lordship, but bloodship. Again, the answers do kind of slide out of him. Uh, and in fact, there are, it turns out there are 18 other lawyers who are waiting to be heard here. And we get down to the, the business they're trying to settle on page six. In reference, proceeds the chancellor, still on Jarndyce and Jarndyce, to the young girl. Big lordship's pardon, boy, says Mr. Tangle prematurely. In reference, proceeds the chancellor with extra distinctness, to the young girl and boy, the two young people, uh, Mr. Tangle crushed, whom I directed to be in attendance today, and who are now in my private room, I will see them and satisfy myself as to the expediency of making the order for their residing with their uncle. Mr. Tangle, on his legs again, beg lordship's pardon, dead, with their chancellor looking through his double eye glasses, not eyeglass at the papers on his desk. Grandfather? Beg lordship's pardon, victim of rash action, brains, now, notice the way that um, Mr. Tangle talks is like those fragment sentences at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, and this guy who, uh, rash action brains, we heard about one of the jaundices that shot his brains out, so apparently this is him. So finally they find a cousin uh, who they can live with. Leaving this address, delivered like a sepulchral message ringing in the rafters of the roof, the very little council drops and the fog knows him no more. Everybody looks for him. Nobody can see him. So 
the messenger kind of disappears in the fog uh, in in the courtroom. Nobody, you know, nobody can see him anymore. Um, and at the end, the very end of the chapter, the little mad old woman marches off with her doc- documents. The empty court is locked up. Um, so it, it, we can see here that what Dickens is doing, he's presenting uh, an objective third-person narration. He's using imagery. He's using the the structure of his sentences. He's using repetition. Um, he's using dialect in the way the law, that Mr. Tangle talks. All of those things are devices that he's using to create this sense of a world that he's building up. Now, one of the things that any opening chapter should do is make you want to read more. It leaves questions. Some of the questions here are, well, what is this suit about, Jarndyce and Jarndyce? Who are these young people? Um, you know, what, what's going to happen to them? Um, who's the little old mad woman? Why is she important? Uh, all of those things are kind of, of unresolved uh, issues that a good opening chapter will leave. But mainly, this is a chapter where very little happens, but a great deal is communicated by the, the, the imagery and the style of the chapter of the kind of oppressive world that uh, Dickens is creating for the opening of this novel. Now, if you turn to the opening chapter of Great Expectations, you'll see a very, very different tone and style here. First of all, it's first person. This is a, a, a character in the story telling the story. It's not somebody from the outside. It says, My father's family name being Pirrup, and my Christian name Philip, my infant tongue could make of both names nothing longer or more explicit than Pip. So I called myself Pip, and came to be called Pip. Now think about that. If that's, in fact, if that sentence was all that we had of Great Expectations, what would we know about the main character? Well, we would know that he, maybe there's something different between him, his name, and his identity. That is, he calls himself something, he can't really live up to his, his name, he can't pronounce it. Uh, he, he's somehow inadequate for that, or too young, too innocent. Uh, that's an interesting character note. Uh, we find out that he lives with his sister, Miss Jo Gargery, who married the blacksmith. As, as I never saw my father or mother, and never saw any likenesses of them either, for their days were long before the days of photographs, my first fancies regarding what they were like unreasonably derived from their tombstones. All right, so we've learned something else very interesting about this character. He's an orphan. Many of Dickens' main characters are orphans. It, it's, a, uh, it's a thing with him. Uh, and it talks about the, those tombstones and gives the details about what they made him think. It made him think that his father was a square, stout, dark man with curly black hair uh, and that his mother was um, uh, freckled and sickly. And we also see there are five little stone lozenges, five little uh, siblings that he had, five little brothers who died before him. So... Why that? I mean, make him an orphan, but he also has five dead brothers? Well, that kind of makes him even more pathetic. That's even more sympathetic. Um, here's an orphan, all of uh, all but uh, he has a sister uh, who is married, 
but all of his other relatives are dead. And notice how smoothly the the story moves into it. Starts with the him talking about his name, talking about his parents, and how their tombstones reminded him. It was the only image he had of them. To we're in the scene where he's actually standing at the tombstone, um, and it was a, this is the top of page two. Uh, it was and that low leaden line beyond was the river, and that the distant savage lair from which the wind was rustling was the sea. So we get the geography there, the river very close to the sea, and that that small bundle of shivers growing afraid of it all and beginning to cry was Pip. So here he is crying uh, at the the graves of his parents. And we get, Hold your noise, cried a terrible voice as a man started up from among the graves at the side of the church porch. Keep still, you little devil, or I'll cut your throat. A fearful man, all in coarse gray, with a great iron on his leg. A man with no hat, and with broken shoes, and with an old rag tied round his head. A man who had been soaked in water, and smothered in mud, and lamed by stones, and cut by flints, and stung by nettles, and torn by briars. Again, look at the way that uh, Dickens uses that those and, 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 and repetitions there. It would give a very vivid, uh, specific image of him uh, who limped and shivered and glared and growled and whose teeth chattered in his head as he seized me by the chin. Now, notice a couple of things here. It says he, he limped and shivered. Um... Pip has just described himself as a small bundle of shivers. That's a very interesting parallel between these two very, very different characters, but they're both shivering. And notice that this fearful man is both scary and sad. It says he's he, um, he limped. Well, that would kind of feel sorry for that. And shivered. Oh, that's there. And glared and growled. Oh, that's that's kind of intimidating. And whose teeth chattered in his head so he's cold and his teeth are chattering and as he sees me by the chin oh now he's being aggressive so so many of these details give contrary uh, images of the man he's scary he's dangerous but he's also been soaked in water and smothered in mud which is both kind of scary and uh, sympathetic um he says oh don't cut my throat sir i pleaded in terror pray don't do it sir Tell us your name, says the man. Quick. Pip, sir. Once more, says the man staring at me. Give it mouth. Pip. Pip, sir. Um, so now he's, he's asking me. He turns him upside down um, and emptied my pockets. There was nothing in them but a piece of bread. When the church came to itself, for he was so sudden and strong that, I, that he made it go head over heels before me, and I saw the steeple under my feet, when the church came to itself, I say... I was seated on a high tombstone. Again, that wonderful image of him being literally turned upside down. And he gets a piece of, uh, uh, the this scary man gets a piece of bread. Now he has an iron on his leg. Um, and look at, um, you know, he says, damn me uh, if I uh, couldn't eat him, said the man about his, his fat cheeks with a threatening shake of his head. And if I had half a mind to it, 
I earnestly expressed my hope that he wouldn't, and held tight tighter to the tombstone on which he had put me, partly to keep myself upon it, partly to keep myself from crying. Uh, that that wonderfully kind of dry, I earnestly expressed my hope that he wouldn't. Now, the little kid, now, they don't say exactly how old Pip is here. You have to kind of guess that, or maybe they'll tell us later. But he seems fairly young. I mean, he's old enough to be, you know, uh, walking around the neighborhood, but he's young enough where he's completely terrified by this man. As we'll see, he, he's fairly gull- young enough to be fairly gullible. The the guy asks him, where's his mother? And he points, there, sir, uh, top of page three. He started and made a short run and stopped and looked over his shoulder. There, sir, I timidly explained, also Georgiana. That's my mother. Oh, he said, coming back. So we know this guy, this guy is afraid, right? When he said, where's your mother? And he pointed to some place in the cemetery, he started running away until he realized, oh, he's just pointing at the tombstone. Uh, again, that tells us something that the, the little boy, Pip, doesn't really realize. Um, he tells him about himself that uh, my uh, sister, Mrs. Joe Gargery, wife of Joe Gargery, the blacksmith, sir. Blacksmith, eh? He said, and looked down at his leg. Now he has an iron on his leg, right? He asked him, You know what a file is? Yes, sir. And you know what viddle, whittles is? Now, viddles, uh, the, the dialect that uh, Dickens is writing here, the whittles. Uh, says, Yes, sir. Um, he says, You get me a file. He tilted me again, and you get me whittles. And we set up something. Now, here uh, is a chapter, the opening chapter that's very clearly setting up expectations. This man tells him, you bring me tomorrow morning early that file and then whittles. You bring the lot to me at that old battery over yonder. You do it, and you never dare say a word or dare make a sign to con- uh, concerning your having seen such a person as me. And then he tells him, the top of page four, I ain't alone. There's a young man hid with me in comparison with which young man I am an angel. So this is a place where we're beginning to see that maybe Pip is very young and very naive. He believes this story about this dangerous young man that he can't see who's going to kill him if he doesn't do everything that the guy says. And look on uh, again on page four as he leaves he says, uh, I wish I was a frog or an eel. He's going out into the marsh, and he's not not like gonna being wet and muddy. If he was a frog or an eel, he'd have a better time of it. At the same time, he hugged his, shoulder, his shuddering body in both his arms, clasping himself as if to hold himself together, and limped towards the low church wall. As I saw him go, picking his way among the nettles and among the brambles that bound the green mounds, he looked in my young eyes as if he were eluding the hands of the dead people, stretching up cautiously out of their graves to get a twist upon his ankle and pull him in. Now, again, that makes him not like a dangerous person, but a person who's in danger. And that dichotomy in the character is very strong in this opening chapter. We see him, he's both terrifying, he he intimidates Pip, but he's also clearly, though the young Pip doesn't seem to understand this, uh, is 
a wretched person himself. He's in a great deal of trouble. Now, the chapter ends with Pip watching him go. He says, on the edge, this is page five, on the edge of the river, I could faintly make out the only two black things in all the prospect that seemed to be standing upright. One of those was the beacon by which sailors steered, like an unhooped cask upon a pole, an ugly thing when you were near it. The other, a gibbet, with some chains hanging to it, which had once held a pirate. So the two landmarks here are a beacon, or a lighthouse, and a gibbet, or a gallows, where they hang people. They hung a pirate there. Now that's a very interesting juxtaposition. Those are the two things. One, uh, a lighthouse is to protect people, and a gibbet is to punish people. Uh, a very interesting uh, symbolic pairing there. And, uh, you know, if you were analyzing this chapter or analyzing this novel, you'd want to think about why those two particular things, how do they relate to these uh, two characters that we've seen at the beginning of the first chapter of the novel. Uh, and then he says, I looked all around for the horrible young man and could see no sign of him. But now I was frightened again and ran home without stopping. So here again, now a very different kind of tone, very different kind of storytelling. This is all first person. There's a lot of action, a lot more dialogue, uh, a lot more of our figuring out what's happening, even though the narrator doesn't. Uh, with an omniscient narrator, we usually know less than the narrator. Uh, with a first person narrator, we're often invited to observe things that the narrator himself doesn't like the fact that this guy who's scaring him so much is really kind of wretched himself. Uh, so again, very different kind of technique. Now let's look at the opening chapter of Our Mutual Friend. In these times of ours, though concerning the exact year there is no need to be precise, a boat of dirty and disreputable appearance with two figures in it floated on the Thames between Southwark Bridge which is of iron, and London Bridge, which is of stone, as an autumn evening was closing in. So notice here that we're getting a, a wide-angle view. Here again, we're in third-person narration, and we see, it doesn't say, uh, and here were these two people, and they were their names were Lizzie and Gaffer. We don't learn that until much later. We just see a boat, it's dirty and disreputable, and there are two figures in it. We don't know anything about them. Find that we, then we get in a little closer. We see it's a strong man and a dark girl. And it says, she looks enough like him, she must be his daughter. And notice it says, uh, sufficiently like him to be recognizable as his daughter. The narrator doesn't tell us that uh, it's his daughter. It says, if, if you looked at them, you could tell that it was. Um, and... There's a mystery about what this boat is doing on the Thames River. Now, the Thames is the river that runs through London. And it says, he could not be a fisherman. It says, he could not be a waterman. He could not be a lighterman or river carrier. Um, there was no clue what he looked for. So a fisherman would be getting fish. A, um, a waterman would be uh, carrying passengers. And a lighterman would be carrying cargo. 
he this boat doesn't seem to be fit for any of them. They can't see what it's doing. But the man is looking very intently and it says she watched his face as earnestly as he watched the river. It says obviously uh, it was obviously we're doing something that they had oh, that they often did and we're seeking what they often sought. So here the narrator is playing a game with us, right? Now Charles Dickens knows what they're doing. He's making us guess. He's withholding the information from us. He says, they're out there. We don't know what they're doing. Obviously, it's something that they do a lot. Uh, and he's kind of slowly revealing information to us. This is one of the strategies that he's using. We learn the girl's name is Lizzie on page two. And notice this passage. But it happened now that a slant of light from the setting sun glanced into the bottom of the boat, and touching a rotten stain there, which bore some resemblance to the outline of a muffled human form, colored it as though with diluted blood. This caught the girl's eye, and she shivered. So the the light of the sun turns something that there, uh, says, uh, glanced in the bottom of the boat, and touching a rotten stain there, uh, colored it as though with diluted blood. So they're they're carrying, trailing something on the side of their boat, and it looks blood red in the sun. It has the outline of a muffled human form. Again, Dickens is being very cagey here. He's not telling us what it is, but it's something that creeps the girl out. And that uh, image of di- looking like diluted blood is very creepy as well. And at the bottom of page two, it was not until now that the upper half of the man came back into the boat. So he is, you know, dipped into the water for something. His arms were wet and dirty, and he washed them over the side. In his right hand, he held something, and he washed that in the river, too. It was money. He chinked it once, and blew it upon it once, and spat upon it once. For luck he said hoarsely before he put it in his pocket. Um, so they're, they're getting money out of the, uh, the river. Uh, he talks about him as a hook-nosed man that bore a likeness to a certain ra- likeness to a roused bird of prey. And again, we, we're really not sure what's going on, what these people do. The man says, here, and give me hold of the skulls. I'll take the rest of the spell. No, no, father, no. I can't indeed, Father. I can't sit so near it. He was moving toward her to change places, but her terrified expostulation stopped him, and he resumed his seat. What? What can hurt? What hurt can it do you? None, none. But I cannot bear it. It's my belief you have the sight of a, uh, you hate the sight of the very river. I, I do not like it, Father. And he says, you don't, you don't even like the river. Again, this thing that they've got there in the boat or dragging beside the boat is she doesn't want to sit near it. Uh, and we also find out that they get their living from the, the river. You know, the very fire that warmed you when you were a baby was picked out of the river. Uh, the very basket you slept in, the tide washed ashore. So one thing that they're doing is that they're collect, you know, taking trash and refuge out of the uh, uh, the Thames River and using it. Um, then we get another boat coming up. Um, and the, the man in this boat says, in luck again, gaffer. So they're lucky. Whatever it is this thing is that they have, it's, it's a lucky thing. 
And look at this man at the top of page four. I says to myself, he went on, directly you hove in view, yonder scaffer, and in luck again, by George, if he ain't. Skull it is, pardoner, don't fret yourself. I didn't touch him. This was an answer to a quick, impatient movement on the part of Gaffer, the speaker at the same time unshipping his skull on the side and laying his hand on the gunwale of Gaffer's boat and holding it. So he's coming up alongside, and whatever this thing is, he's saying, I didn't touch it. And says, he's had touches enough, not to want no more, as well as I make him out, Gaffer. Been knocking about with a pretty many tides, ain't he, partner? Such is my out-of-luck ways, you see. He must have passed me when he was up the last time, for I was on the lookout below the bridge here. I almost think you're like like the Wiltshire's, partner, and sent him out. So he, this... It is, it is the figure like a human being. He has been knocked about. So they're getting dead bodies out of the river. Um, and apparently that's how they make their living. Uh, again, and Dickens never says this explicitly. You have to kind of put it all together. You have to pay very careful attention to what all these characters are saying. And Gaffer is very upset with this guy. He says, partner, I am no partner of yours. Um... Since when was you no partner of mine, Gat, for Hexham, Esquire? Since you was accused of robbing a man, accused of robbing a live man, said Gaffer with great indignation. And that assumes that he wouldn't have any problem with robbing a dead man. And he just reached into the water and got money. Was that from the dead man that they had? Apparently so. And that's okay. And he says, uh, as a dead man, any use for money? Is it possible for a dead man to have money? What world does a dead man belong to? T'other world. What world does money belong to? This world. How can money be a corpse's? Can a corpse own it, want it, spend it, claim it, miss it? Don't try try to go confounding the rights and wrongs of things in that way. But it's worthy of the sneaking spirit that robs a live man. So again, this is a very mysterious opening. Uh, he's, we're getting just hints and fragments of what's going on, uh, you know, what they're doing. And look at the way that it ends. In the last paragraph, it says, Lizzie's father, composing himself into the easy attitude of one who has asserted the high moralities and taken an unassailable position, slowly lighted a pipe and smoked and took a survey of what he had in tow. What he had in tow lunged itself at him sometimes in an awful manner when the boat was checked, and sometimes seemed to try to wrench itself away, though for the most part it followed submissively. So this body in the water, and we can understand now why Lizzie would not want to be near it. It it looks like it's reaching out to him. Again, it follows submissively. Yes, I bet it does. A neophyte might have fancied that the ripples passing over it were dreadfully like faint changes of expression on a sightless face. But Gaffer was no neophyte and had no fancies. So this is something that they do regularly. And this very kind of creepy. Now, think about why doesn't Dickens just come out and say they were collecting dead bodies on the river? Uh, you know, they, they turn those in and they get money for them. Well, that doesn't, wouldn't really draw you in. Uh, the way he does it, you become an active participant. You have to figure out 
put the pieces together and it turns you in the reader into a detective. So the experience of reading this is very much like being a detective, like putting clues together. Uh, that's that's high. That's always, in some ways, the case in an opening chapter. But Dickens really highlights it in this particular opening chapter. Now, for our next class, I'd like you to read the poetry of Tennyson. Uh, I've, the, the poems I'd like you to read are Mariana, The Lady of Shalott, Ulysses, Break, 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 Tears, Idle Tears, Now Sleeps the Crimson Petal, The Charge of the Light Brigade, and Crossing the Bar. And I'd like you to think about Tennyson's poetry. Uh, in What ways is it like or different from the romantic poems that we've read? Um, and one thing particularly I'd like you to think about with Tennyson is the way that he uses sound. Tennyson is famous for his his poetic ear. In fact, I would urge you to read these poems out loud. They sound amazing. And think about why they sound amazing and why we like poetry that sounds amazing. Uh, so we'll talk about uh, Tennyson's poetic techniques and other great things next time. Uh, so I, again, thank you for your attention, and we'll talk to you next time.